0: If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 18, that's where we'll be at this morning. Get myself situated here. Luke chapter 18, Uh, we are in the second week of our new series called Faith Is, and so if you were, uh, if you're new or you missed last week, need to catch up, just direct you to the website to do that, or you can listen on podcast, again that's one of the things that Zach does, many of the things behind the scenes. Uh, uploads that to our podcast reel, so you can listen to that while you're driving down the road or working out or whatever you whatever it is you do. Um, but anyways, I, normally I kind of do a little recap, but this morning we've got a long way to go and a short time to get there. Cue smoking the bandit. Everyone under 30 is like, I don't know what you're talking about. Okay. Um, so anyways, we're going to go on and jump in with, uh, with where we're going this morning. Um, so just, if you need to catch up, Go back, look online, look at the podcast. It'll be there for you, all right? Um, So anyways, so uh, if you don't know, I have four small children, uh, seven and under, and yesterday morning was a little bit of a chaotic uh, time in the Larkin household. We're actually still living with my in-laws right now, although we did just close on a house on Friday, so I'm officially a Hardin County homeowner. So that's news. Uh, But So we're still staying with my in-laws, but yesterday morning... A um, little bit of chaos in, in the morning. My kids wake up entirely too early, and they woke up all on the wrong side of the bed, apparently, yesterday. And so I'm sitting there at the, the kitchen table. I'm eating my waffles for breakfast, and uh, there's just this mass chaos going on in the next room over. I don't even know what it was. Three of my children were some combination of crying, yelling, angry, fighting... Like, I don't even know what was going on. I wasn't in there. I just know it was a lot of volume, okay? And so I'm sitting there. I was actually going through my sermon notes, and my oldest, my seven-year-old, Owen, uh, kind of comes walking up next to me, you know, and just stands there for a second, and I kind of turn and acknowledge him, and uh, he said something to the effect of, so, Dad, it uh, looks like I'm the only kid that's being good, huh? <laughs> and so uh, I thought it was humorous. Although I don't know if he was just making an honest observation or if uh, he was trying to leverage that moment for his own personal gain. Still not sure. But um, the, re- I, the reason I, think I tell that story, I think it's funny, is it, it kind of perfectly sets up uh, the text that we're going to be in today. Uh, and, and really kind of his statement, you know, that uh, in that moment he's sort of surveying the situation. He's looking at his siblings and says, I'm really being a lot better than they are. Uh, what that did, even though I think his was innocent, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. Uh, what that does though is it reveals something that's kind of innately there in our hearts, where we will kind of look at other people as sort of our uh, sort of our um, benchmark for how we're doing, right? And we do this in a lot of different ways, whether it's you know our our status in life or. Uh, if, you're in, if you're a student, you're in school, you kind of look at how other people are performing. But, but we do this spiritually, too. Um, and again, I don't think it's something we intentionally do. It's just there. Like, we'll look at other people, uh, and depending on kind of where they are, even spiritually, we'll kind of uh, rank ourselves on this sort of imaginary uh, ranking system. Like, well, I'm, I'm doing a little better than they are, so I guess I'm okay, right? Um, and so I think... Um, there's a, there's a danger in that, and I think the text today will, will show us there's a danger in that. Um, but also, I was reading uh, a study this week that, that kind of hints at this idea, and it was a study uh, that talked about, uh, there's this, I'm going to get all the statistics wrong, I didn't write them down, but essentially of, of the, the number of young adults, 18 to 22, I think was the age, that, uh, that dropped out of church at some point in their lives, uh, one-third of those that dropped out said, the reason, or at least one of the reasons they left the church was because they experienced uh, judgmental or condescending attitudes in the church. So I, I think some of those statistics can be misleading. I think they're like they're loaded and so sometimes I don't always trust them. but regardless of how accurate they might be, the reality is that for a, a big chunk of people, they left the church because they felt there was this sort of uh, condescending attitude, Towards them, and according to our text today, like this is not a problem that's new, right? This is something that has existed uh, for hundreds and really thousands of years, and so that brings us to uh, Luke chapter eighteen. If you have your Bibles again, we'll start in verse nine, uh, and this is a parable that Jesus tells. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with what a parable is, it's basically Jesus will tell a story to kind of make up a. A situation and put some characters and he'll tell a story uh, that is a fictional story but proves a really significant spiritual point. And so that's what Jesus is doing here in this parable. And um, he's this comes right on the heels. He usually, if you're going to read through the, uh, the Gospels, kind of the way they uh, organize those is you'll, you'll see two or three parables kind of in a row and they each kind of make a point. And usually when you put them all together, they make a bigger point. Uh, but Jesus has just told a parable about Uh, a persistent widow, right? And and he actually ends that parable with this. um, In verse 8, it says, I tell you that he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? And so Jesus is, he's told this parable about this widow who gets what she wants because she keeps asking. Apparently my kids have read that story too. And so, um, you, you parents, you know. And so, uh, but but what's interesting is he tells this parable, and we're not going to read that parable. But but at the end of it, he kind of brings up this idea of faith, and he says, "When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth?" And so this idea of, of faith or what is faith is already kind of circulating here. And then he goes on to this parable of uh, the tax collector and the Pharisee. And so uh, here's where it starts in verse nine. We're going to kind of we're we're going to go through this kind of verse by verse. And then I'll. Uh, bring out a couple things at the end. Starting in verse nine, it says, "He, this is Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, and they treated others with contempt." All right. So, first, think of the the audience. All right. You notice the link here. He's just finished a parable where he's asking, uh, you know, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And when he gets to the next parable. What we have here is an audience that they have faith, but their faith is in the wrong thing. Because if you look at it again, it says, they, uh, he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves. So their faith or their trust, uh, it's not that they didn't have it, it's just that it was uh, applied to the wrong person, right? Instead of being trust in the Lord or trust in Christ, it was trust in themselves, okay? Okay. Um, and so he, what we're going to find out, spoiler alert, is that that's a terrible place to put our faith and trust is in ourselves. So going on in verse 10, it says, Two men, so this is Jesus telling the actual parable, two men went up into the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. All right, so when Jesus tells a parable, uh, tells a story, he, he has like, he's making up these characters and he's putting them in place for a reason. So these are purposeful characters, okay? Uh, And so I think it's important that we understand what these two people represent for us to really understand uh, the point of the parable. And so uh, first we have a tax collector, okay? Or I'm sorry, a Pharisee. So what I want us to do is, if you've been in church or you've read through scriptures, you know the Pharisees, you know the tax collectors, but what I want us to do is to try and hear this the way that the hearers would have in the first century, okay? Uh, Because this story and these characters would have meant something differently to them than they do to us today. We have 2,000 years of hindsight and and knowing how this plays out to kind of like, yeah, we know where this story's going. But but for them, it wouldn't have been that way. Okay, so first you've got a Pharisee. Okay, and the Pharisees were sort of the religiously uh, elite men of the day. Okay, these were... Uh, they had entire books of the Old Testament memorized, like committed to memory. Uh, the The Old Covenant Law. If you read through uh, the first few books of the Old Testament, the the Torah is what they called it, and you got all the breakdown of the law. Um, if you've ever read through your Bible and you've got stuff like "Don't boil a goat in its mother's milk," you know, the things that make you like, "What?" Okay, these were the laws that they observed. There's like six hundred plus, and they observed them all. Okay, in fact. There's some branches of the Pharisees that, that, um, that followed the law so strictly that they were like, you know what, 600 is not enough, let's add a few more. And so they kind of added some of their own traditions, and they would follow those. And so these are um, sort of religiously elite, um, obedient, well-behaved, uh, well-respected, well-taught, well-trained men. Okay, And so what I want us to do, again, I want us to hear this in the way that the first century Hearers would have heard it. I want to put some flesh on that for us today. So, if we were kind of take a, a Pharisee into modern day context, we're probably looking at think about like some really well respected uh, individual in the religious world. Okay, think about somebody that um, just maybe they have like you scroll through Facebook and you see advertisements for their uh, their latest religious bestseller. Okay. Uh, this is somebody that's got probably multiple degrees from, like, the, uh, the highest seminaries, right? They got them hanging on their walls. Um, these were, in fact, they probably had an adjunct uh, professor role at the local seminary. So, like, in, in modern day, this would have been a well-respected um, person, right? Squeaky clean, right? There's no, there's no reproach on their name. There's no dirt on them. They're, like, they're well-respected men, that's who the Pharisee would have been, <clears throat> excuse me, to the first century audience. But the Pharisee is not the only person in the story. <clears throat> excuse me, that sounded like I was getting ready to cry. I'm not emotional yet, okay? <laughs> Get a drink there. That will sound awesome on podcast later, Zach. Um, the Pharisee was not the only person in the story, right? The the other uh, person we read about is a tax collector. Okay, and so tax collectors uh, in that day, um, they, they were not like your local CPA or your uh, employee down at the Department of Revenue. Okay, because to be a tax collector in first century, first century uh, Israel, Jerusalem, was to essentially be a crook. Right? They were a despised people. Because what they did is, uh, even though they were uh, Jewish, is they kind of had a deal struck with the Roman government. So they would collect. Taxes, and what they would do is they would collect taxes over and above what Roman government required. Right, so they collect more than the Roman government requires from the people. They skim some off the top for themselves, give the rest to Rome. And so the tax collectors in that day were seen as as corrupt, crooked, wicked men. Okay, they were essentially were, were traitors. Right, they aided in the Roman oppression of of the Israelites. So they were. They were not looked favorably upon, and so again, if we could put some flesh on that for today, uh, I think I'm not even going to like paint a picture. I just want you to think of this: what is the most like despised, repulsive individual you can think of? Maybe it's somebody you see in the paper or in the news. Some right again, you whatever that is for you, like whatever that person would be to you, that, that if they were to walk in this room, like you would feel uncomfortable and you would want to get up and leave. That's who the tax collector would have been to this first century audience. right? Despised, rejected, social outcast. Nobody wanted anything to do with these guys. So now that we've, we've got that, um, let's look at what we see here. Okay, we got, our, we got our two characters. We got the Pharisee, the tax collector. Verse 11, um, Jesus is going to tell the story and he's going to give us a little glimpse into the spiritual lives of our two characters. Verse 11, it says, The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Okay, so we got... The Pharisee. We get a glimpse of, of his spiritual life here, and he he walks into the temple and uh, just first notice notice like the, the physical elements at play. It says he stood far off by himself, and right. This is not a reference to social distancing. Okay, this is right. The Pharisee walks into the temple and he's going to pray, uh, and his physical uh, like where he, his, the physical um, elements of this are kind of evidence of, of how he sees himself spiritually. Right? He's far off. In other words, he doesn't want to mix or mingle with other people because in his mind, he's, he's on a whole different level. Right? I am better than, I am higher than, I'm not going to mix with those people in that crowd because I'm not like them. Right? That's even his prayer. He, he, literally, <laughs> he literally thanks God that he is not like other people. Right? He's like, God, I thank you that I am not like the extortioners I thank you I'm not like the adulterers I thank you that I'm not like the unjust and then he looks at the tax collector that's there too and he's God I thank you I'm not even like that guy all right so even his prayer is this sort of spiritual arrogance all right I thank you I'm not like these guys okay then his prayer goes on in verse 12 so verse 11 is God I thank you I'm not these things and then verse 12 is uh, I fast twice a week I give tithes of all that I get. All right, so again, the Pharisee is a strict observer of the law. He's, he's like, hey, I fast, uh, and, and without getting too deep in the weeds, he's, not only does he fast the way that the law would require, but he actually goes above and beyond. He doesn't have to fast twice a week, but he does. Like, God, look how awesome I am. I fast twice a week. And then he says, uh, you know, he gives a, a tenth of all that he gets. All right, so essentially, you got the first part of his prayer is, God, I thank you, I'm not like this. And the second part of his prayer is, God, look at all this awesome stuff that I am. Look at all this awesome stuff that I do. And I was reading, studying through this this week, uh, and a couple of commentators said that, that his prayer is essentially him sort of recounting his spiritual resume to God. Look at my resume. Look how well I've done. Right? Or uh, I like this. This, um, this commentator says that in his own eyes, God was very fortunate to have someone like him. Right? And you kind of get an idea of just sort of the spiritual arrogance that we see from the Pharisee. Now, remember the audience. The audience that was told this was people who uh, trusted in themselves and looked on others with contempt. So the audience is probably looking at this Pharisee going, seems like a pretty good guy to me. Okay, but, but there's uh, the tax collector. And so look here, we get a glimpse into his sort of spiritual life. Verse 13, it says, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. All right, so again, physical, we get the physical element here. It says he stands far off, so it sounds similar to the, uh, the Pharisee, but, but his is not a uh, he's not standing far off in the sense of, I'm better than, I don't want to get any of that on me. Right? He's standing far off with the sense of, I am not worthy to be close. Right? I, I know who I am, a tax collector. I know I'm not worthy to be in this place. And he thinks lowly of himself. Um, he has some knowledge of, of God's holiness and transcendence. And some, at least enough self-awareness to know that that he doesn't even deserve to be there, right? And then the the text says he won't even lift up his eyes, right? He's uh, Again, he he regards himself as so lowly that he won't even even lift up his eyes to pray. He just looks at the ground because he knows, right? All these things about a tax collector, right? They're not untrue. They were thieves, right? They were corrupt. They were crooked. And and he's not denying it. He, He knows it. It says he was beating his own chest. And this is, not, this is not like LeBron after he dunks on somebody's face. This is not him flexing. This is not a Tarzan. It's just in that day and time, it was a sign of lament or grief or sorrow. So the point that Jesus is trying to make is this is a man who, who knows who he is before a holy God. He knows he's a sinner, and that's, that's the essence of his prayer. Whereas the Pharisee was praying, hey, look how awesome I am. The tax collector says, be merciful to me, a sinner. He feels the weight of who he is. And he doesn't offer any sort of defense. He doesn't make any attempt to justify or rationalize. He just throws himself fully on the mercy of God. All right, now I want to, again, take, take it back to the first century. They're listening to this story. Remember the audience, it says, he told this to some who trusted in themselves and looked on others with contempt. So I imagine they're sitting there and they're like, oh man, this is going to be good. You got the Pharisee, look how awesome he is. You got this tax collector, can't believe this guy's even here. He's about to get what's coming to him, right? That's what they're thinking when they hear this story. And here's what Jesus says in verse 14. He says, I tell you, This man, the tax collector, went down to his his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. If you're hearing that story as a first century uh, Jewish person, especially one that uh, holds themselves in high regards, trusts themselves and, and looks on others with contempt, like, your world has just been flipped upside down. Right? Because you're listening to this story and you're like, yes, yeah, the text or the, the Pharisee. This is, I identify with this guy. And then all of a sudden, you get to the end of the story and this guy that you thought was supposed to be the good guy turns out to be the bad guy. Meanwhile, the guy that was the bad guy walks away justified and declared righteous before God. Like, what just happened? Okay? And if you feel sort of the, like, like, that's the scandal of the story. That's, that's the point, that, that Jesus pulls the rug out from under them to, to reveal to them right, that, that when it comes to righteousness, when it comes to being justified before God, it doesn't happen quite the way that you think it happens. Is his point to the audience that day. So the same sort of scandalous, shocking story that they heard that day is one that, that we need to be reminded of today. All right. So I got three sort of three things I want to pull out for us here. Um, so we can we, we talk about faith, real faith, genuine faith, saving faith. And the first thing is this is that faith isn't comparing. Right? Faith is not comparing. Again, the audience trusted in themselves, looked on others with Contempt, And so central to their like, idea of faith was this idea that, that my righteousness, right, being justified before God, my righteousness is uh, determined by how I compare to others. Right? This is certainly the case with the Pharisee. Right? And, and the reality is, though, that don't we still kind of wrestle with this 2,000 years later? Like if we could kind of dig at our own hearts a little bit this morning. Like I don't think any of us would just acknowledge it or admit it. But like we all sort of wrestle with this. This idea that that we determine uh, in our own minds uh, our level of righteousness on some false uh, imaginary spiritual scale by how we compare to other people. As long as I'm more righteous than the next guy, then I'm doing pretty well. As long as I'm more righteous than, than my neighbor, then I must be doing all right. But have you ever noticed, maybe this is just me, have you ever noticed in those moments when we're tempted to compare ourselves with someone else uh, at a spiritual level, have you ever noticed that we never compare ourselves or rarely compare ourselves with someone that's way up here? Right? Like most of us by default are going to look at someone that may be a few steps behind us. Okay? Like, like it's easy to compare ourselves with the man or the woman whose sin has just been like, Publicized or blown up their uh, their lives, right? It's easy to compare ourselves with them. Be like, well, at least I didn't do that. I'm not too bad, I don't guess, right? But none of us, by default, compare ourselves spiritually with the man or woman that's just uh, surrendered all their their conveniences and, and comforts of life to go take the gospel to a third world country, right? Very few of us sit and compare ourselves with, with that person, right? And listen, the, the real problem in, in this idea of of judging our righteousness or our, uh, our, our justification before God based on us is that God doesn't grade on a curve. Right now, my college calculus teacher did grade on a curve. It's the only reason I passed. <laughs> I'm not, my highest grade freshman year at UK was a 60. And somehow I passed with a C because he graded on a curve. <laughs> when it comes to God, though, he doesn't grade on a curve. Right? God doesn't look down at us and be like, "Um, that guy's nailing it." Let's compare everybody to him. I right? know God has a standard, and His standard is perfection and holiness. And the bad news is that none of us can hold a candle to that standard. But the good news is that someone else did that for us—Jesus. And right, so, if we can use the, kind of the example of of uh, a. <laughs> passing exams and that kind of thing. The reality is that, that God's standard was a perfect score. And our exam grades are terrible, like my college calculus exams. Right, but, but Jesus came along and he lived a perfect life, got a perfect score. And then we put our faith and our trust in him. What happens is he, he takes our imperfect score on himself. That's what he did on the cross. And all the punishment that comes with that, he took that. And then he gives to us his perfect score. So that we, when we trust in Jesus, right, we get his exam, his name scratched out, our name put on it, so that when, when God looks at us, he doesn't see our, our imperfect record. He sees Jesus's perfect record in our place, All right? That's the point of 2 Corinthians five, twenty-one. Paul says, for our sake, for our sake, He made him, that's God made Jesus, to be sin, though he knew no sin, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. Faith is not about comparing ourselves to others. There is an objective standard that none of us have met. We are not justified or declared righteous based on where we rank spiritually among our peers. So in those moments where you're tempted to look horizontally to, to determine how righteous you are, just remember that that's not how God judges it. Right? And, and, and that could, it could go either way. Like Sometimes we look at other people and we say, man, at least I'm not that. But then sometimes we, we come at this from the other side and we, we like beat ourselves up and we look at someone else and we're like, man, I could never be that. And, and both of those, if we tend to either one of those, we're missing the reality that our righteousness doesn't come from how we rank with others. It comes from Jesus and what he did for us. And we put our trust and our faith in him. Right? Righteousness is, is given or imputed to us from Jesus. It's not, it's not based on how we compare to others. Alright, so faith isn't comparing. The second thing is this: faith isn't religion. Okay, so to, to build that out a little more, that could be a confusing statement. Faith doesn't build righteousness on religious acts. What I mean by that is your righteousness before God—you right, being justified before God—is not determined by the religious things that you do. Right now, um, I mean, that's what we see in the Pharisee. Remember, his, his prayer was, "Hey, uh, look at this stuff I've done. I've been just. Right? I've I've tithed. I've fasted." even more than I'm required to do by the law. Right? And, and, and again, we can, can fall into this too of thinking that as long as I do enough of the right thing and do the right thing and do it as frequently as I can, then I'll be righteous before God. Right? But like, what makes it tricky, I think, is, is the things that we often look to Uh, And think that if I do that enough, then I'll be righteous. The things we look to, what makes it tricky is that those are not bad things. right? Faithfully attending church is a good thing. Spending time in the Word is a good thing. Praying, fasting, giving, serving. Those are great, good, wonderful things. I would argue those are even things that are, are commendable, if not even commanded, in Scripture. Those are good things. But those are not the things that make you righteous. Again, because your righteousness is received by what Jesus did for you. Those things are uh, hopefully things that are done in response to what God has done for you in Christ. Right? So the problem is, is it's still so easy to look to this religious stuff as what earns our righteousness. And we see this in Matthew chapter 7, um, verses 22 and 23. uh, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is teaching a crowd, and he, like, these are terrifying words. He says, He's talking about the, the end day. He says, On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you, depart from me. Like, isn't that terrifying to think that you could go through life doing all this awesome stuff? God, look how awesome I've been. And at the end of your day, stand before Jesus and he just says, Hey, you, you did a lot of great stuff, but that stuff didn't make you righteous. Your righteousness comes from me and, and I never knew you. Like that should, <laughs> like that should rightfully terrify us. Okay. And I'm just going to be honest, man, as a like, as a pastor, I feel the weight of this. Maybe in a special way, I don't know. All right? But right, I've given my life to reading the Bible and studying the Bible and preaching the Bible. And right, I've got multiple seminary degrees, right? Hanging up, well, they're not hanging up in my office because my office is not put together yet. They're leaned up neatly against the wall, okay? I've got seminary degrees. I've got letters after my name and in front of my name. I've got books on theology and doctrine and ecclesiology and I actually like to read them because I'm a nerd right I've right I've, I've done this stuff I've been on mission trips like, like I've counseling like I've done a lot of things that I think would be considered good things and yet this text like comes crashing in to remind me that my righteousness is not based on any of those things none of it right? when it comes to uh My righteousness, all those things, though I think they're good and helpful and I think they serve the church well, uh, all those things are as good as filthy rags when it comes to my righteousness. Because again, my righteousness is not earned by things that I do. It's received by what Jesus did for me. It's received. Listen, here's here's the deal. And this this might sound... um, Scandalous, and I think it's supposed to. In God's economy, like the addict who cries out for mercy in his jail cell gets just as much mercy, just as much righteousness, as the saint that sits in the chairs and sings every Sunday. Because our righteousness is not earned. It's not on how we stack up with somebody else. It's received because of what Jesus has done for us. So, faith isn't comparing. Faith isn't religion. So, let's talk about what faith is. Here's the good news faith is resting in the mercy of God. All right, th- this was the tax collector's prayer All right, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. It was just that, right, just a simple prayer before God. He, he acknowledged his problem, which was his sin, and he acknowledged the solution which was God's mercy. And then Jesus says that he went down to his house justified, declared righteous before God. Again, not because he ranked higher than somebody else on some sort of imaginary spiritual scale, not because he had anything awesome to hang his hat on and, and really impress God with, but because he, like, he threw himself on the mercy of God. And we... And we we probably don't feel like that sort of desperation that, that he felt in the story, but we should because his need is our need. It's God's mercy. All of us should feel that. So earlier I read Matthew 7, some of the most terrifying words in the Bible, but just a few chapters over, Matthew 11, are, are what I think are some of the most like comforting words. Listen to this, Matthew 11, this is Jesus talking again. Verse 28, just Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Right? Twice, just in these two verses, Jesus invites us to rest. Right? The, the thing that our souls long for the most, which is rest, is what is made available to us through God's mercy to us. And there's no more because of God's mercy lavished on us. There's no more striving. You don't have to earn yourself into God's favor. Right? There's no more uh, working and shuffling to try and position yourself a little bit better than your neighbor. In fact, you're freed up to love and serve and extend mercy to your neighbor because of that. We'll talk about that at some point a little more over the next few weeks. Um, right, I, don't, I don't have to check a bunch of religious boxes to earn anything from God because of his mercy Poured out, lavished on me. And, like, just to be clear, like, we're not minimizing sin when we talk about this. In fact, I would argue that it's not until you feel like the weight and the seriousness and the conviction of sin that you really understand how good God's mercy is. So, we're not minimizing sin. We're not saying sin's not a big deal. We're saying, no, sin is awful. Sin is why Jesus went to the cross. But by going to the cross, and he was able to, to satisfy God's wrath towards our sins so that we might receive mercy. It's not until you feel the weight of sin that you feel the rest of God's mercy. Faith is resting in God's mercy. So here's what I want to um, kind of land us on as we leave. The good news of God's mercy is, is it's, yes, it's the thing that we depend on the most, but it's also the thing that, that God supplies in abundance. Right? In Lamentations 3, you don't have to turn there, but Jeremiah is, is writing and he, he writes about God's mercy and he says that his mercy is uh, never ending. Right? He says it never ceases. He says it's new every morning. So this mercy that all of us so desperately need and cling to and rely on, this mercy that is our only source of righteousness before a holy God This mercy God supplies to us in an unlimited supply. And then in the New Testament, Paul, Ephesians 2, says that that God is rich in mercy. He's, He's not stingy with it. This is a quote from a book I read earlier this year called Gentle and Lowly. Just would recommend, if you're a reader, check it out. Incredible book. But this is talking about God being rich in mercy. This is what the author says. He says, God being rich in mercy means that on that day when we stand before him quietly, unhurriedly, we will weep with relief, shocked at how impoverished a view of his mercy-rich heart we had. Isn't that good news? It's incredible. Right? That, that God is not stingy with his mercy. He doesn't have some limited supply that he's got to ration out just little by little. It's new every morning. He's rich. He's overflowing in mercy, and he lavishes it on all who ask. On all who ask. So that we might go home declared righteous, justified. Not because of anything that we've done. Not because of how we compare to somebody else. But because our faith is in Jesus who earned our righteousness for us. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the good news. We come here to, to, to preach and to sing about and to worship in response to. All right. So I invite you to stand with me. We pray together. Father, we come to you this morning and we are thankful for your mercy that is lavished on us, your grace that is lavished on us. We've sing about it this morning. Right? That... Um, we're just thankful, or we want to confess here this morning, just corporately as a people, that that there is nothing in us that is that is righteous apart from from Jesus. In fact, Lord, the only thing the only thing in us that pleases God is Jesus. Right? There's no amount of 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 comparing ourselves to others. There's no amount of uh, religious works and acts and rituals that will earn us any sort of favor or righteousness before you. But the good news is that in Jesus, we put our faith and our trust in him, that you you give us the righteousness that he earned. So Lord, we thank you for that. I pray this morning if there's someone here in this room that's never put their trust and their faith in you, if they've never received your mercy for the first time, I pray that you would Just just provoke their hearts to respond, to put their trust in you, to trust in the good news of the gospel. And then, Lord, for the many more of us in here that would say that we've done that, we are believers, we are followers of Jesus, would you just remind us that our righteousness before you does not come from anything that we could ever do or have ever done. Our righteousness does not come from how we compare to the people in this room or outside of this room, our righteousness is received from you because of what Jesus has done for us. Remind us of that. So we love you. We pray, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.